We're in a series called God With Us. God With Us is a dominant theme of the entire Bible, but it comes to fruition uh, in fullness at the, uh, at the Christmas story. And so a verse we've been coming back to again and again this month is from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it reads this, this way. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, say it with me, God with us. And last week we looked at God being with us in the valley. Right, there are mountains and there are valleys. It's easy to experience and feel God in the mountains. In the valleys, not so much. And Nicole Eunice did a terrific job last week helping us understand the character of the God who is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. And today we're going to look at another biblical metaphor, the wilderness. What does it mean to experience God in the wilderness? And the wilderness is different than the valley because time in the wilderness is usually longer. The wilderness is a desolate place. It's a barren place. It's often described, uh, associated with wandering. Um, it's a sense of being stuck. When you're in the wilderness, you, 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 know, you know you're not supposed to be there but you may not be sure where you are supposed to be. That's the wilderness. And this whole pandemic has been kind of a shared wilderness of sorts. It's been going on now for the better part of a year, and we are fatigued and we're frustrated, and we're trying to hold on to this promise of a better day, but we're starting to wonder if it's ever going to come. Right? It's a collective global wilderness experience but most wilderness experiences are more personal. Maybe you're in a relational wilderness and you're in a relationship that feels like it's just not going anywhere. You're just kind of wandering around and you're feeling kind of stuck. Uh, maybe it's a vocational wilderness or a financial wilderness or a spiritual wilderness. You feel like you're wandering or you're stuck or you're feeling dry. Well, I have good news this morning. While we enjoy God on the mountaintops, we get to know God in the wilderness. We experience God in the wilderness. We are shaped by God in the wilderness. And, and wilderness often follows mountaintops. Wilderness experiences, be forewarned, wilderness experiences often follow mountaintop experiences. The big wilderness story of the Bible is the Old Testament story of the Exodus. God's people are in slavery for hundreds of years, and then God, through a man named Moses, uh, sets his people free. Moses stands up to the most powerful man in the world, let my people go. And then through a series of miracles culminating in the dramatic parting of the Red Sea, God's people are freed. And it's in just this incredible moment, the compassion and the power of God on full display. It is a mountaintop experience. And that story becomes the bedrock story for the people of God. It was, it was a dramatic uh, rescue. Uh, the people of God walk, think about it, they walk through a sea on dry land and they walk into the wilderness. 40 years of wilderness 
wanderings, this dramatic rescue right into a wilderness. Now, uh, you know that God was with them in the wilderness, and you may remember the story that God sent a, a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night to guide them, and God instructed them to build a tabernacle, a dwelling for God in their midst. Uh, the word tabernacle means dwelling. And God gave a lot of detailed instructions about how this tabernacle was to be constructed and where it was to be located. Um, here's an artist's rendition of the tabernacle. You can see it's, I don't know if you can make this out, it's largely a tent. Here's the tabernacle. This is what a pillar of fire might have looked like, the, the presence of God. And it was to be located right in the middle of the camp the people all surrounding it. God is teaching his people that right there in the middle of the wilderness, right in the middle of nowhere, right before a band of former slaves, God is present. God is in their midst. And the tabernacle becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus, that one day God would dwell among them in human form. Jesus would be the tabernacle. Now, Jesus himself did not get to avoid the wilderness. Uh, in fact, his wilderness experience came right after a mountain-type experience. Uh, the story where Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer, this great moment, the sky opens up, a dove comes down, and this voice says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This dramatic, incredible experience, and do you know what story in the Bible follows that one? Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days, facing temptation and facing the tempter. A wilderness experience is often, uh, often follows the mountaintop experience, be forewarned. Now here's kind of a big idea we're gonna come back to again and again as we think about what happens in the wilderness. One big idea we'll return to, and the big idea is this. Your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. Your deepest need, even the need that maybe took you out of the wilderness, your, your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. And this lesson was learned by the prophet Elijah, recorded in 1 Kings 18 and 19. 1 Kings 18 is definitely a mountaintop experience for the prophet Elijah. Happened actually on a mountain, Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel. And a lot of you remember the story, uh, the prophet Elijah, the prophet of God, taking on the 450 prophets of Baal. Remember this story? The prophets of Baal call out to their God. Elijah calls out to the one true God. Nothing happens with the prophets of Baal's God. But when Elijah calls on his God, fire from the sky comes down and scorches up the altar that he has made and drenched as a test. It is a fantastic story. You want to look at that again. 1 Kings 18. It's an adrenaline-pumping, miracle-infused, slam-dunk victory for Elijah, which is what makes chapter 19 so unusual, so surprising. Chapter 19 starts this way. Now Ahab, Ahab's the king that has been after Elijah. He's an evil king, he tells Jezebel, his wife, she's even more evil than her husband. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah 
to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. I'm gonna kill you. And then this surprising line, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Elijah, this, this is the guy that stood up to the king. This is the guy that took on 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. This is a guy that single-handedly took on an entire nation by himself. This is the guy who was brimming with confidence a few sentences earlier. This, this is so surprising. It's such a big turn that, that many uh, scholars have suggested that, that maybe uh, it, this passage got out of order that this is out of chronological order. The passages, the manuscripts must have been mixed up. I think this is just how life works. The wilderness experience can follow the mountaintop experience. In your life and in mine, there'll be mountains and valleys and seasons of wilderness. Our life is no different than Elijah's. The queen's threat doesn't seem so big on the surface. Elijah had handled more. Part of me wonders if this was just the one thing that was going to push Elijah over the edge. Have you ever been there where you're like, if I got one more thing, it doesn't even need to be a big thing, just a little thing. I am going over the edge. Maybe this was that for Elijah. Uh, the, the story goes on. When Elijah came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, into the wilderness. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Right? Elijah says to God what you and I have all said at some point, I have had enough, Lord. This has to end. I can't take anything else. Elijah is tired. He ought to be. He's just run 100 miles. This is before Uber, before trains. Uh, He's on foot 100 miles. Of course he's tired, but you get the sense that his exhaustion isn't just physical. I recently attended a webinar on pastoral burnout because pastors are, are frying out all around our country. And the presenter said, uh, he said, pastors, you're, you're, you're tired, but it's not just tired, you're depleted. There's a difference, right? Because if you were just physically tired, a, a, a nap would fix that. But how many of you have ever known the time, kind of exhaustion that a nap won't fix? That a day off won't cure? You're depleted. Elijah needed, and we need, physical rest and soul replenishment. Physical rest and soul replenishment. Last week, we looked at the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. Physical rest. And he restores my soul. Soul replenishment. Physical rest, soul replenishment, God is going to give to Elijah both. Let's look again at the story. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of uh, bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Elijah is tired, he's depleted, 
He's depressed. He's cranky. And so taking a lesson from kindergarten, the angel decides that what Elijah really needs is a snack and a nap. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is rest, is take care of your body, right? The story goes on. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. This is so beautiful. How many of you ever needed God to come to you a second time because you didn't quite get it the first time? This is a, a very grace-filled moment. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now take a look at this map. Some of you are familiar with biblical history. You know at the time of Elijah, the kingdom's divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom. This is his charge. And he was up here on Mount Carmel where he defeated the prophets of Baal. Then he runs down to Jezreel. This is where the queen threatens him. And he runs for his life. He runs out of the northern kingdom into the southern kingdom. But he doesn't stop there. He goes right out the bottom of the southern kingdom into the Negev. You know what the Negev is? It's a wilderness. This is not just about Elijah's safety because he could have stopped in the southern kingdom. Uh, the queen has no jurisdiction here. But he didn't stop there. He kept going. The idea here is that he has left his call. He's left his people which is why God says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why have you left your post? Why have you left your people? And maybe you've heard God say something similar to you at some point. What, what, are, you, what are you doing here, Scott? This is not the assignment or the place or the people that I have for you. Commentators have noted that Elijah shows all the classic symptoms of depression. He's suicidal. He's got to be reminded to eat and drink. He also has a distorted perspective. He complains to God. Elijah gets a little whiny here. Um, this is what he says. He replied, I've, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He says to God, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Not true. The Israelites were not trying to kill the prophets. Elijah's perspective is distorted. He thinks now everybody is against him, and he throws himself a giant pity party. Anybody here ever throw themselves a pity party? I have. You come up with all the reasons why you can't succeed, and you come up with a list of how everything's stacked against you. But Elijah is in a cave physically and metaphorically. It's the cave of self-pity and self-doubt. And sooner or later, everybody logs some time in that cave. Now remember our key point today. Your deepest need becomes a gift when you allow it to drive you to God, to depend upon God. And Elijah is at a point of need here. He's going to learn this lesson here. God does a very loving thing in the very next sentence. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. 
for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was, what? Not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then, after the fire, came a gentle whisper. The Lord was not in the earthquake, was not in the fire, was not in the wind. The, the Lord was not in the spectacular, in the remarkable, the Lord was in the ordinary. People often wonder, why, why when we're overwhelmed by stress and we're overcome by anxiety, why does God's voice seem so quiet? Really, why doesn't he speak to us in really dramatic and powerful and unmistakable ways? If he wants me to know him, if he wants me to trust him, why does God whisper? God whispers because he's close. The devil shouts lies. God whispers truth not to shove us away but to draw us in. God is near. God is close. God is with you. This is the message that permeates the entire Bible. One psalmist said this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Another psalm puts it this way. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. We enjoy God on the mountains, but we get to know God in the wilderness. Some of you know that. Listen, I've lived a, a blessed and relatively easy life. I have no complaints, no pity party from me today. I've had more than my fair share of mountaintop experiences, but I know what it is to go through seasons of self-doubt I know what it is to grieve the loss of a loved one to death. I know what it is to face cancer and chemo and surgeries. And here's what I've found. I would rather be in the wilderness with God than on the mountain without him. I'd rather be in the wilderness with God than on the mountain without him. Your deepest need becomes a gift when you allow it to drive you to depend upon God. Will you bow and pray wherever you are? I want to give you just a moment today. Some of you may be on a mountaintop in your spiritual journey right now and you just feel God's closeness and you know his power. But some of you are in a cave in the wilderness. God feels distant and removed. 
Or maybe you're tired or depleted or depressed or afraid. Maybe you've abandoned the assignment that God has given to you. Or maybe you wonder if God can ever use you again. I encourage you to do what Elijah did and run to God. Allow him to refresh you. Allow him to renew your call. Take a moment right now and ask God to do that for you in silent prayer wherever you may be. God, we spend our days avoiding the wilderness, and yet it is there that we experience you in ways that shape us as your children. You are the God who whispers and draws us close. You are the God who is near. You are the God who is with us, and we are profoundly grateful. This we pray in the name of the one who dwelt among us, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the whole church said together, Amen. Amen. Amen.